Hello and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast with me, Dr. Kat Arney. In this episode, we're taking to the night skies with a closer look at the genetics of bats. Usually the stuff of horror films and Halloween, these fascinating mammals have many important genetic secrets to share with us about evolution, longevity, immunity and more. Although they're more usually associated with spooky winter nights and creepy castles, bats are fans of the summer months. Head outside as dusk falls on a warm night and you might be lucky enough to spot some bats as they whiz by. I've got some that visit my garden through the summer and I love watching them zip around with incredible agility. Genetics Unzipped's roving reporter Georgia Mills is also a big bat fan, so she went in search of some experts to explain why bats are so special, how they involved their incredible abilities, what we can learn from them, and also their role in spreading disease. First up, one of the world's leading bat geneticists, Professor Emma Teeling from University College Dublin. She's director of the Centre for Irish Bat Research and co-founding director of Bat1K, a global consortium sequencing the genomes of every single one of the world's living bat species. So, what makes bats so special? Bats are probably the most extraordinary of all mammals. If you think about it, they're the only mammals that have achieved true self-powered flight. Anything else just falls with style, but bats can fly. One in five of every living mammal on this planet today is actually a bat. And there's about 1,400 bats, give or take another 200 different species. They're found throughout the entire world. They're missing only from the extreme polar regions. But also, they can use extraordinary sensory perception. So bats are able to orient in complete darkness by using sound alone. And if you were ever in tropical rainforest at night out catching bats of the likes of Panama. And what you'll see these great big huge spider webs and giant spiders in the middle of the web. And you see these small bats flying in total darkness. We can hear them with our bat detectors. And they're able to use sound to pinpoint the spider and to avoid the web using sound alone in complete darkness. The other unique thing that bats have is that they seem to have evolved mechanisms to slow down aging. So typically in nature is a law, small things live fast and die young. Think of a mouse, think of a shrew. But bats are the smallest of all mammals. The smallest mammal in the world is actually the bumblebee bat. Shrew biologists will argue with me, but we're right, they're wrong. <laughs> but bats seem to live for an extraordinarily long time. So they have booked the trend. So they're small. They have a really high metabolic rate because they fly, but they also live for an extraordinarily long time. And indeed, they have the lowest rates of cancer ever recorded in any order. Bats have evolved mechanisms to somehow fight this metabolic and size constraints that drive the aging process. So they're able to not get cancer and live for an extraordinarily long time. Indeed, the bat that holds a record for living the longest is Myotis brantii. It's this brant bat in a population in Siberia. And a male was caught as an adult and then he was ringed. But what was extraordinary about this was that this bat was then caught 41 years later. And now I believe the record's 43, if not more, with no signs of ageing. They have so many superpowers. We haven't even talked about their other one. <laughs> <laughs> and their other one is their ability to live with viruses. 
bats, because of their unique immune response, potentially are reservoirs for many, many pathogens because the virus doesn't kill them. They've evolved mechanisms. Their unique immune system allows them to tolerate and live with different pathogens. So indeed, if you study the genome of bats, all of these very unique mammalian adaptations that we could use to our benefits will be found within the bat genome. So that's why I studied them. Wow. And I didn't even talk about their use in ecosystems. <laughs> can talk about that now if you want. I mean, this podcast, we've only got half an hour. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to have about 10 of them. <laughs> so how are you looking into bats and all their superpowers? So you're, you're, you examine their genes. So tell me about your project. So the project you're talking about is a Bat 1K project. This is a project whereby we want to sequence the genome of every single living bat species to chromosome error-free assembly. And to do this, we want to promote bat diversity. We want to uncover their unique adaptations. And we want to bring people all around the world who are interested in understanding bats together. So we published our pilot project, which is, as you can see behind me there, we got the cover of Nature in July. We're very proud of that. So you, you got your, your study done, you got your cover of nature. Congratulations. Tell me what kind of things you found. So first of all, we wanted to, as a phylogeneticist, I wanted to try and uncover where do they fall in the tree of life. Trying to place bats within the tree of life is difficult because they fall in this superordinal group called Eurasiatheria. So I hoped that when we had full genomes, when we could go and pull out all the orthologous regions, when we could use new, very different methods to account for all the appropriate rates of change, would we be able to find unambiguously where the bats fell? And we did. So what you find is a bat group in Eurasiatheria. And you have, at the base, you have the true insectivores, the elliptifla. Next branch down, you have rats. And then you have all of the other Laurasiatherian orders that group together, such as carnivores and horses, pangolins and so forth, in different groups. So we found where they went in the tree, which was, as far as I I was happy. There's still parts that are difficult and tricky, but we found where they fell in the tree. So with that information, we were then able to go and look at, okay, what's going on when you look at expansion of gene families or contraction of gene families, for example. Can we find any evidence of selection of different environmental and evolutionary pressures acting on bats that maybe could underlie and show us where their parts of the genome had evolved that was different, that maybe led to their unique adaptations? So we did a whole series of this. So what we found, which was particularly interesting to their immune response, was that you can see in the genome that there's expansions of these families, these apobec family, for example, which are these antiviral mechanisms, and they're expanded in the bats. So right there and then that gives you think, okay, they have evolved antiviral mechanisms. We found evidence of selection acting on many of their different immune genes that are evolved in potentially their downstream inflammatory responses. We found a whole series of genes that were knocked out that weren't there in bats. Again, this had been seen before from the first two bat genomes ever sequenced. And that indeed, bats are missing a cascade of genes in their inflammatory response. Now, what does this mean? So what this means is bats seem to be able to mount a very aggressive antiviral response, but yet they equally respond to that by mounting an equally aggressive anti-inflammatory response. Now, we could see this in the genome, that was fantastic. We found evidence of selection in certain genes that maybe underlie their echolocation capabilities. And this is just looking at six species. I mean, all the amazing things bats can do that have this genetic underpinning. It seems like these things would be very useful for 
everyone else to be able to do too. So do we know what's special about bats or is it just by chance they just had this mutation that was super good for them? So this is a very good question. It's a little controversial. I have my theories and everybody agrees with me. So if you think, what do all bats do? They all fly. So flight happened in the ancestral bat. And so flight happened somewhere between 80 and 65 million years. There's 20 million years of evolution where the pre-bat evolved flight. And so what had to happen to evolve flight? So you had this huge morphological adaptation of the skeleton. Finger bones had to grow. You had to have flight membrane grow from an ankle, grow from a tail. Potentially, it's not that crazy to think that other pathways had to evolve to allow for flight. Now, what I mean by this is flight is the most metabolically costly of all forms of locomotion. And typically what they've shown is that bats will expend three to ten times more energy when they're flying than when they're not, for example. Their oxygen consumption is huge when they fly. So the question is, what is the metabolic cost of flight? It's been argued it's very, very high. High, high metabolic costs causes the cell to have to, I suppose, it's like an engine. The engine has to rev up. The engine has to consume lots of oxygen. But then there's lots of byproduct of metabolism, which are the free radicals. And so the idea is that free radicals break up your cells. Free radicals excite your immune system. So there's deleterious effects of having too high a metabolic rate. And so potentially, I argue that bats had to evolve mechanisms, the immune response to deal with this. They also had to evolve the ability to repair their DNA. They had to evolve the ability to remove the damage. So they had to evolve the ability to maintain homeostasis despite this high metabolic rate. The result of this is an ability to tolerate pathogens. So they deal with pathogens in the same way as they deal with this constant sterile inflammation they experience. So they're able to dampen their immune response, but also they then don't experience the same level of age-driven inflammation. As we get older, what's the thing that really kills you as you get older? Your own inflammatory response, arthritis, all these different types of old age diseases are your immune system potentially going crazy. So the bats have evolved these mechanisms. And I started this long-term project in Brittany and France studying these long-lived bats where we take a non-lethal sample from the same individual year after year after year as they age. I wanted to see, well, what are the bats doing to potentially slow down the aging process? And indeed, all of those things I told you about, you can see that happening in bats as they age. And it's different to us. They upregulate their DNA repair mechanisms as they age. They upregulate their ability to remove protein damage as they age. They maintain their immune response when you look at their different cytokine transcripts. And their mitochondria, it's firing like crazy and they're producing all of this free radicals and so forth, but they do not show the same level of oxidative stress damage you would expect. So is it flight or is it something very unique in these long-lived bats? I don't know. The question is, how do you really test it? Best thing to do would be to be able to look at a non-flying bat, compare it with a flying bat and see, but all bats fly, so that's not going to work. So the other thing is compared with our other flying vertebrate group, which are birds. This is something that I think that we do need to do. Does flight drive this or not? And so now people are really addressing this question. For sure, something weird is going on with their inflammatory response. You can see this in the ancestral bat. Some bats, you have long-lived bats and you have the shorter-lived bats. You have the in-between living bats. You have the bats that feed on fruit, the bats that feed on insects, the bats that feed on other bats, the bats that feed on fish, all these different ecological strategies that have different lifespans. 
And by looking at this phylogenetic independent contrast of long versus short, accounting for ecological variation, we can see is it a signature within their genomes that underlies their longer health span and their unique immunity. And so that's why I think we should do it all. I mean, thinking from a very selfish point of view, is there any way we can steal this ability short of learning to fly ourselves? Can we use the genetic information to help human health? I absolutely, completely 100% think we can. We are mammals. They are mammals. We share the same suite of genes. And if you think about it, for example, let's look at what we know about SARS-CoV-2. What we found that in, in a hospital, a local hospital here in Dublin, there was researchers, when an individual patient comes in to them, they look at their inflammatory, their anti-inflammatory cytokines. They can predict by looking at this ratio whether this person is probably going to need to be intubated or not. So if you have an immune response that is not like a bat, you're going to be sick. If you had an immune response much more like the bats, they don't do so badly. They do better. They can deal with this. So they're the same genes. And what you can do is you can look at, for example, what happens when a bat gets exposed to a pathogen? What do they do to allow them to live with and tolerate that pathogen in terms of switching these genes on and off? You have to have enough of an antiviral response to neutralize the pathogen and then enough of an anti-inflammatory response to neutralize your own inflammatory response. So by studying these, we will get insight into when we give us the antiviral versus the anti-inflammatory drugs. Now that's just a kind of a quite a crude example. And what about the bats themselves? Because I know they've got all these superpowers, but they're still, they're not all doing great, are they? There is still a conservation concern. They're a huge conservation concern. Think about when you're younger and you looked up in the, the sky in the summer. If you're out somewhere in the countryside or even in the city, you'd see bats. And you'd walk through woodlands, you'd see bats. But you know what else you'd see? When you're driving through the country lanes, what would your windscreen be full of? Insects. And so right now we're having this huge global crisis where we're losing our arthropods. And if you think about what feeds on arthropods, what modulates them, they're the bats. So we need them because they're of huge ecological importance. So bats are keystone predators in ecosystems and they modulate all the different arthropods and they feed on pest insects, for example. They would feed on an insect that would eat crops. It's been estimated that if you were to wipe out one particular species of bat in the United States of America, it would cost the U.S. taxpayer three billion U.S. dollars in insecticide to do the job that the bats do. We got to find ways to live with the bats much more, regardless of their superpowers. And again, part of Bat 1K, we want to promote bat conservation. We want to say, right, they're really important. Here's why they're important. Let's all work together to try and conserve our bats because our ecosystems function better. And we are simply another species that exists in our ecosystems. So you take out those keystone predators and the modulators of our, our ecosystems and it doesn't work. I mean, the bats are like bees. We need to keep them or we aren't going to do so well as a species. And do you have a favourite species of bat you'd like to tell us about? Oh, that's a very naughty question. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's like asking me, do I have a favourite child? The wonderfully enthusiastic Emma Teeling from University College Dublin talking to Georgia Mills about bats and their fascinating genomes. You're listening to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast. Find us online at geneticsunzipped.com and on Twitter at geneticsunzip. And while you're at it, 
why not tell a friend so more people can discover and enjoy the show? What you're hearing now is the sound of what's probably a pipistrel bat using ultrasonic echolocation to navigate and hunt, converted into audible sound thanks to a clever bat-detecting device. It's the same principle as sonar. Bats send out high-pitched ultrasonic noises which reflect back off objects and are detected and interpreted to build up a picture of what's going on. Although this ability to sense the world through sound is not unique to bats, and not all bats can echolocate, they have certainly taken it to another level. So how do they do it? And how did this ability evolve? Georgia Mills spoke with Dr Kalina Davis at Queen Mary University of London, who's been trying to find out. There's many different kinds of echolocation, but kind of to describe it sort of in the simplest form... The animal that's undertaking it produces sort of sounds that can either be produced from their larynx, so they're producing kind of like vocalisations, or in other ways they can make clicking noises with their tongues, or some maybe even will make clicking noises with their wing beats. And so then the animals use the sounds that they've actively produced and listen to the echoes as they bounce back from objects around them to work out if there are objects there or where there's empty spaces, and then that's how they can create this kind of sound landscape around them, which they can use to help them orientate themselves or find food and move around. Right, and so this is quite a like a specialised system. Not only do you need the special squeaks, which can come from a variety of places on the bat, you also need to get them back to receive them and then interpret them. Yeah, exactly. So it's kind of a very complex process altogether. So you need specific adaptations in the way that you're going to make the sound, how you're going to hear it when it comes back and then also process it. So it requires adaptations in many different systems, not just in the in the ears of the animals. So do we know anything about how this evolved and, and the genes behind it? Um, so we don't really know exactly when it evolved or how many times even it's evolved. And it's very much an active area of research. We can hypothesise that either it's evolved once in all bats and was then lost in the non-echolocating fruit bats, or otherwise it's evolved multiple times, so at least twice in different groups of bats. But we're still not really clear. And so one approach that people have used to try and help them understand this is looking at the genes behind it and the different molecular adaptations. But obviously, because it's such a complicated system that requires so many different aspects of the biology, there's not like a simple marker that we can go to and look at and try and understand what's happening. It's still very much an open question, I think. And so this is something you do, right? You're investigating the inner ears of bats. So how do you go about that? Yes, so this is something that I'm really interested in. I've been working on for a number of years. So I've been looking at the molecular aspects of it as well as the morphology. So I've been previously looking at different rates of evolution in protein coding genes non-coding elements and then also looking at the gross morphology of the cochlea or the inner ear of the bat species to try and look for changes that have happened. How do you investigate the inner ears of bats? Do you have living bats or, or what's your method there? It would be nice to have living bats in the lab. Obviously it's very difficult to do that. So, And also if we're looking at just the inner ear, because obviously bats are tiny, the inner ears are even much smaller. So it's very, very difficult to look at the inner ears of living bats. So instead, we've used 
X-ray technology, so microcomputer tomography, to try and look inside the skulls of the bats where we can look at the really complicated morphology that's shown by the different inner years of different species. So it's possible to use museum specimens, which allowed us to look at a really interesting range of bats. So I was able to use um, different specimens from different museums, and some of them were several hundred years old. Obviously, the outer features of the skulls were a little bit damaged, but inside they're quite protected, and obviously the specimens are very well looked after in the museum, so it's still possible to see them. Obviously, so whereas the cochlea in living bats is actually the fluid-filled gap where all the hair cells are, but I was able to look at what's left of the bony labyrinth, which surrounds this space, and then from that you can reconstruct the inner space. So I'm not directly looking at the cochlea, but looking at the bone that surrounds it, and you can use that to reconstruct the shape of what would have been there in the living bat. Amazing. And does, is there a visual representation of echolocation? Can you see like a marker in the skeleton of the inner ear that's like, oh, this bat echolocates? Yeah, it really jumps out at you which ones are echolocating, which ones aren't, because the cochlea is so much bigger compared to the non-echolocating fruit bat. So you immediately see, even though the shape varies a lot between different echolocating species that use different forms of echolocation, there's still kind of this overriding similarity. So you can really see immediately which ones are likely to echolocate and which ones aren't. And so from your investigations of bat ears, have you got to the stage yet where you've made some findings and like, what are you specifically looking for? So we've had, we've made a number of studies on this in terms of either the genes or the morphology. If I kind of summarise, it seems to me that it's more likely that echolocation probably did evolve multiple times or at least was not lost in old world fruit bats. So maybe there was some kind of increased hearing capability in the ancestor of bats. And then later on in different lineages, that was further developed to create the more advanced um, echolocation that we see in some extant species. Oh, amazing. So bats managed to do this twice, we think. Well, it's very much debated. So some people don't believe that at all. I think that it was definitely um, lost in our fruit bats and that it was only evolved once. From my point of view, I think that it's more likely that it has evolved multiple times because I just think it is, as we said earlier, echolocation is kind of like a superpower of the bats. So if it had evolved in the ancestor and then all of them were capable of it, is it likely that the old world fruit bats would have lost this amazing ability? We don't really see anything that might constitute if a trait is lost. So if you think of when a trait's lost... For example, one of the senses that's most commonly lost is vision in different animal species. So, for example, in blind cavefish, and there you see sort of this degeneration of the eye structures and loss of gene function. So you see pseudogenes and things evolving. So in terms of oval fruit bats, there's no evidence of any kind of relaxation in terms of the morphology of the inner year. So you don't see any kind of increased variability or anything when you look at the different shape variation across species and there isn't a single gene that we know that looks like it's it's lost its function or showing kind of relaxation or something. Kalina Davis from Queen Mary University of London. While we can agree that bats probably don't deserve the reputation they get from horror movies, they are carriers of many diseases. And while they don't necessarily get sick, they can act as reservoirs for infectious agents and can pass them on to humans and other animals. This includes coronaviruses, of which the most famous is SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID-19. 
It's still not clear whether bats played any role in the current pandemic. But to discover more about how these animals pick up and transmit infections, Elizabeth Castro-Salas at the Instituto Politecnico Nacional in Mexico City is studying coronaviruses in Mexican tequila bats, looking for signs of viral genetic code in the form of RNA in their poop. First things first, though, tequila bats? There are these small bats that feed on nectar and pollen, but mostly they pollinate the tequila agave. So without these bats, there wouldn't be no tequila in Mexico. Oh, wow. So they're, they're important then. <laughs> yeah, they're very, very important. Is it as glamorous as it sounds? Are you going and just picking up bat poo in the field? <laughs> yeah, it is very fancy. <laughs> so yeah, we go to the field. We're actually going to work in Baja California Sur. So it's in the coast of Mexico. And we trap the bat without harming it and we take it out. We put it inside this fabric bag so they can breathe but not go away. And we wait for them to poop inside and we collect it and put it in RNA later, you know, for preserving the RNA, the viral RNA specifically. We want that. So when we are at the lab, we extract the viral RNA and then through PCR, we are going to detect viruses from the family coronaviridae. So you're going to be looking at viral load in this feces. So what are you hoping to find out then? So we think that different events like migration, lactation and pregnancy could affect the immune system. Therefore, the bat won't be able to control viral replication. So we think that bats arriving just from migration will shed more viruses into the feces. Uh, but we also expect that with time, as they recover and rest, there will be less virus shedding the feces. So we're going to analyze non-reproductive bats just arriving from migration and in different points of time as well to see that recovery and to see if that correlates with the viral shedding in the feces. And for example, we think that maybe pregnancy and lactation will also affect it. So we are going to study also females in those reproductive states. Let's take a step back then and just talk about bat immunity in general, because they've got a reputation as the sort of the hub of a lot of nasty diseases that humans don't really want to get, but can. So how, how <laughs> yeah. come bats have, have done all right with coronaviruses and Ebola and all sorts? Yeah, that's amazing, right? I wish I had their immune system. <laughs> well, they have like a reduced inflammatory response, but they also can control viral replication, like I said. So yeah, they don't respond with inflammation to pathogens. So it's like they have the door open to enter the body. But once they're there, viruses, for example, their replication is controlled by interferons. You know, they interfere viral replication. So it's amazing because they can harbor the virus, but the virus cannot replicate. So therefore, it cannot harm them. So normally... Even if they harbor the virus, it, it won't be shed into the environment. So there's no risk normally for humans and other animals. In general, how do viruses jump from bats to people when it does happen? Okay, yeah, a lot of people think that just because the animal has a virus, 
a whole pandemic is going to start. But we know that viruses are everywhere, you know, in the water, in the soil. Uh, a lot of animals have them, not just bats, pigeons, cats, dogs, they're everywhere. So we need more than just the virus in an animal, right? We need that animal to be immunosuppressed, for example, and to get infected. And then that animal has to shed the virus into the environment. And that virus also has to survive in the environment. And also when it survives, another animal or person has to be in contact with it and be also susceptible to the virus to get infected and maybe to be like this intermediate host and to pass it on to other species like the human. So it's a lot of things that have to happen. So it's very rare. Normally there's no threat to humans. So we think that what has happened recently is with climate change and habitat devastation, these type of events have occurred more often given rise to zoonotic diseases. When you start getting a few more answers, what kinds of implications is this going to have for bat conservation? Because they're not doing great, are they? Yeah, totally. I think that we have to be very careful when we publish the results because we don't want to continue, you know, with the persecution of bats. So we think if we demonstrate that these events have an impact on the immune system and viral shedding, we will understand better the zoonotic outbreaks and we will also generate more information so that people understand that they have to respect their habitat and that we can coexist without risk because most people are afraid they're going to get ill from you know a disease they got from a bat but that normally doesn't happen like I said there's a lot of things that have to happen for a zoonotic outbreak to take place. Right yeah because if, if it was easy right it would probably happen all the time seeing as there's so many bats so many humans and so many diseases. Yeah all the time it, and it wouldn't happen just with bats you know it would happen with pigeons with pigs with birds everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> All the time, yeah. That's all for now. Thanks to our guests, Elizabeth Castro-Salas, Emma Teeling and Kalina Davis, and to our delightfully batty roving reporter, Georgia Mills. Huge thanks as well to Alyssa Hulpert for taking Georgia out into the Cambridgeshire countryside with her bat detector to capture those fascinating sounds. We'll be back next time taking a look at how genetic engineering technology has been used to turn genes into transformative drugs like insulin, growth hormone and monoclonal antibodies. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references, music credits and everything else, head over to geneticsunzip.com. You can find us on Twitter at geneticsunzip. And please do take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does make a difference and it helps more people discover the show. Genetics Unzipped is written and presented by me, Katani, with additional reporting by Georgia Mills. It's produced by First Create the Media for the Genetics Society, one of the oldest learned societies in the world dedicated to supporting and promoting the research, teaching and application of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at genetics.org.uk. Our theme music's composed by Dan Pollard, our logo's designed by James Mayle, and audio production is by Hannah Barrell. 
Thanks for listening, and until next time, goodbye.